Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. We should be much more wary of ultra-processed foods and stop thinking that there are safe ones and there are unsafe ones. They're not testing them properly on our gut microbes, but really we we should be avoiding them. We should realize that however healthy looking the labels are, it's all those extra ingredients that are that make us hungrier, make us overeat and make our microbes sick. Welcome to series 11 of the Not Perfect podcast, a show that's here to share conversations with world-leading thinkers to help us grow, stretch our minds, thrive and heal from within. I'm your host Poppy Jamie, a best-selling author of Happy Not Perfect and entrepreneur. I've spent the last decade exploring how we can live better, support our mental health better, expand our consciousness and feel full even when things feel turbulent. I hope you enjoy the show. My guest this week is an absolute hero and legend in the medicine and nutrition world. I'm talking to Professor Tim Spector, who is a professor of genetic epidemiology at King's College London, director of the Twins UK study and one of the world's leading researchers in gut microbiome. Professor Tim is the director of the British Gut Project, whose research has transformed what we know about food and health. He is also the author of two excellent books, The Diet Myth and Spoonfed why everything you know about food is wrong the amount he's done for furthering the understanding of health is so phenomenal he could have already retired and never lifted a pen again so that's why his new book is quite groundbreaking it's called food is life and his latest research is beyond excellent i have never read a more comprehensive guide on the truth behind our food this new book is a food bible if you will it goes through every myth you could imagine and looks into the research behind those claims it's eye opening actionable easy to understand and a must read what's a favorite quote you return to often and why it's probably let food be your medicine and it's been attributed to various different people over the years and i don't it really matters who was the first whether it was the ancient greeks or some french philosophers but we're relearning some of the, the things from the past that we've tend to treat food as basically energy and fuel and we've downplayed anything about it the therapeutic value of food and i think you know that has been seen as wacky and uh, alternative medicine and all this sort of stuff but it's all being reversed and and this is now the reality and we need to reeducate the whole of the medical profession about food and you're doing a great job in doing that what's a life lesson you've been reminded of recently and why Four years ago, I was skiing in Georgia, on the Russian border, and went in uh, do some heli skiing, and the helicopter crashed. And I was very lucky that uh, we all got out alive and relatively unscathed, and just felt you know our number wasn't up that day. But it it made you realise how delicate life is, and really how you need to 
live your life to the full because you never know uh, when it's going to end. So in a way that drove me on to take more risks and do the, the stuff that I'm really interested in, that I'm really passionate about and uh, not let people try and dissuade you from doing the things that you really enjoy in life because you, you don't know whether, you know, you're going to wake up tomorrow. And I think that's that's part of being human. But um, it definitely brought it into sharp focus for me because, you know, we were all very lucky to survive. It's so interesting that this incident has been a life lesson in so many different formats. For example, in your book, you use it as an example to show how badly we evaluate risk in comparison to other situations. Would you mind speaking to that a bit? Because you were deeply unfortunate, if you look at the macro statistics, to have a crash in a helicopter compared to other things. Could you explain the example you use in this book? Our whole concept of risk is very distorted by culture and gossip and the media. Every time there's a shark attack, we hear about it and we think we're really likely to die from shark attacks. And yet a television falling on you or, or something is probably much more common. You know, we're told that peanut allergies are likely to kill you. And yet one or two children a year out of 60 million people die. And many more actually die from choking on hot dogs. We tend to always focus on something unusual and risky or something sexy and all the mundane risks we, we sort of play down. And virtually all these risks, uh, like going in a helicopter and crashing and dying, are actually much less than driving for a few hours in the UK on a motorway where your risks are very much higher. But that's mundane and people will say, oh, you, you, you mustn't do this because you could be one of those one in a million people that's going to, you know, if you eat this food, you're going to die of that or whatever. But no one ever says, well, you really shouldn't drive for two hours. That's far too risky. So we have a very distorted view of risk. And it's particularly true when you start looking at all the myths uh, about food, risks of food. You know, eating burnt toast came out as, oh, that's really risky. It's going to give you cancer. Well, compared to driving for 15 minutes. No, it's trivial, you know. So these are some of the things that I think we've got a very distorted view on that I think I use that incident as like a reality check just to wake people up. And every time they get told by uh, the Daily Mail that this is a, they should watch out for this food, it's going to give cancer, push the pause button and think. After reading that bit in the book, I very much drank the almond milk that I definitely would have thrown away had I not read your book because I suddenly thought, I'm sure this salve date is absolutely fine and I will not die if I drink this almond milk. And safe to say, I'm here today interviewing you. So I've tried it out once <laughs> and it seems to work. Yeah, I mean, we're, we've been drilled into this, you know, oh, you mustn't get food poisoning to yourself or your family. And the numbers of cases of home food poisoning are just so incredibly rare compared to going out to restaurants, and uh, which we do all the time, we're eating in cafeterias. So we should learn to look at food. To you know, Food waste is a huge environmental concern. We should really give that major priority over some manufacturer telling you that the sell-by date. You know, look at the food, smell it, taste it, you know, got some fungus on it, scrape it off. It's probably all good for you. Um, that's what I, I've changed my mind, you know, a lot in the last sort of six years about this issue. But, you know, we can't keep throwing away a third of the food that we, we buy. How do you define happiness? Define for me, it really is uh, making sure that you're meeting your expectations. And so 
if you set the bar too high about what you want to achieve or do in a day, then you're never going to be happy. Whereas if you have a more pragmatic view of it, then you can be happy. And I think the thing to do is to think about life in stages. And, and I've definitely shown that you get much happier if you, you break your life down into different segments and then realize those small goals. Each one gives you a little boost, a little prize, a little slap on the back, which is this happiness. And whether it's cooking yourself a nice meal, whether it's feeling you, your bowels are in good shape, you've had your 30 plants a week, whether it's uh, going for a nice run and it feeling good, or you know, sitting down and having a, a cup of tea or a gin and tonic. I think it's all about managing those expectations, breaking life down into little bits of happiness. And that's certainly what, what I think works for me. It's giving myself little treats. So when I'm right when I was writing this book, I spent a lot of time in Spain and happiness for me was finishing a chapter and then being able to go for a swim or something. And that made it all worthwhile. So this nicely brings me on to your book, which is so extensively researched. You have done so much work and you've saved so many people so much time in getting confused in the studies of like what's right, what's wrong. How long did it take you to write this book? And, and secondly, why was this your third book? Okay, well, it, it took me six years and I expected it, it would only take me two years. So I missed my deadline uh, for the publisher, but had a great editor at uh, a Penguin and, and uh, we worked together on this. And it became apparent that this was becoming a massive volume. And I realized why there's a good reason no one else has done this because it's mm. very, very hard work. Mm. If you produce a unique book of any kind, there's usually a reason. And it, the reason is it, it is really tricky. You know, some people have done encyclopedias of food, but they haven't really gone into the science. They've just described it. And no one had done this in any comprehensive way. And even this book is still still foods I missed out, although you know, hopefully I got most of the common ones. So what happened was after I'd been going for two years, I just said, actually, there's bits in the book that could work as a separate book in a way to keep it smaller. And those bits ended up being spoon fed. So that's the, the honest answer is uh, it, it's produced lots of babies. And one of them was spoon fed, which was the sort of the angry bits, the bit about the food companies, the bits about introducing personalized nutrition, why we're not all the same. I think they came out naturally to keep the size of this other big book going. And that, and that worked out very well. That boat gave me some more time. <laughs> so got the publishers off my back and I was able to, to carry on and, and get back to this one. And it was still a struggle to keep this um, to a manageable size. And I, I still had to, at the end, cut out whole sections on uh, liquids, which I think will be part of a future book. But to come back to your second question was, why is it different? I've written several books, but the, the first the one on genes, one on epigenetics, and then diet myth was the, the first one about food and gut health. And that really introduced the gut microbiome. And that was first written in 2015 with the revisions, but gives you an idea that sort of eight years ago, when this field was still quite young, introduced the gut microbiome and why we should see food differently through a different lens. Then, But it was very general advice about gut microbiome. Then the spoon-fed introduced why we've been misdirected by food companies and governments, etc., and some of the, the scientific false trails, but also introduced personalized nutrition and introduced for the first time the Zoe and what we're trying to do with the company Zoe. 
And this book is now taking those more theoretical ideas and putting them into practice. People said to me, that's all very well. These are great books, you know, but I want to know in great detail, you know, which foods do I pick when I go into the greengrocers or the supermarkets? How do I tell which bread to pick? How do I pick the right lettuce? How do I do all these these kind of small details? And what's the actual science behind them all? So that's why I was stupid enough to attempt this and uh, take six years of my life. It's a practical guide that I think, as you said, should be a bit of a food Bible that people should keep an eye on to say, okay, what does someone say about beetroot? You know, let's look at it. What well, is actually beetroot shown to be healthy? Does it reduce your blood pressure? Some people say, well, let's look at the, the data. Does it cause cancer? No, you know, these kind of things. So I want people to learn themselves and think more about the foods they're eating and realize that even within every category, whether it's cabbage, it's lettuce, it's carrots, it's breakfast cereals, there's a huge range of quality and different effects on your health that nobody up to now has really uh, focused on. What I love and something you just mentioned there is the fact that this book contains a lot of the answers that you are routinely giving out to the endless questions that you're asked about food. What would you say are maybe the two most common questions you find yourself consistently asked in response to your work? One, usually from women, is why isn't white wine better for you? (laughs) So they're very upset that I say, well, if you are going to drink alcohol, it should be red wine because that's got the best gut-friendly chemicals, these polyphenols. And and I have to explain that white wine has a third of the amount of um, polyphenols because the grape skin isn't left as long. They they get very disappointed by that. Another (laughs) one might be um, increasing questions about fasting. Mm. Um, So that's really popular at the moment. You know, my doctor told me never to skip breakfast and uh, it's it's bad for my kids and all this kind of stuff. So I think that's a really big uh, area which I, I go into. On, just on your top line on that, because I've heard you be quite an advocate for breakfast in the past. So what is your general summary line on breakfast or fasting in the morning? It's not essential. So we were misled to think that uh, it's crucial that everybody has breakfast. And it's clear that some people are not at all hungry in the mornings and some kids are not at all hungry in the mornings. And we should listen to our bodies. And as long as we're not malnourished, nourished and losing weight, et cetera, et cetera, and don't have eating disorders that allow flexibility and probably do as our ancestors did, is not eat first thing we woke up because there's increasing evidence that if you can leave a longer overnight fasting period, so your eating window is smaller, your fasting window is greater just by delaying breakfast, then uh, that's of general health benefit. So as well as the skipping the breakfast itself and then having a larger lunch where there's some evidence, it's not barn door, but most of it shows that a healthy option and contrary to previous belief doesn't make you gain weight and may make you lose some weight because you don't overeat as much at lunch as you did. The idea that we should be at least delaying breakfast, even if we don't want to skip it, uh, is really important. Or we bring forward our evening meal to adjust for that. I think our whole idea of when the best time to eat breakfast and what to eat um, is really important. And I think the reason I get questions about breakfast is it's such a personal choice and it's something that we all 
we were able to, in a way, design our own breakfast very easily. We're in our home. Some people might want yogurt and honey. Other people will want peanut butter. Some people have porridge, eggs, and you tend to stick with it. Unlike any other meal, you, you never dream of having, you know, porridge every evening for five years, um, and yet we think that's normal for breakfast. So I think it it's the perfect one to experiment with and play with. And I, I hope people after reading the book will realise, just based on some of my experiences, how they might, you know, want to reevaluate what they think is a healthy breakfast. And you were mentioning bread is another question that you're often um, asked. But what are the most important things that you want people to know about bread? I think that there is good and bad breads and that we mustn't treat them all the same. And that most of the bread you get in supermarkets is of very low nutritional value, has high relative amounts of starchy carbohydrate sugars compared to uh, healthy fiber. You can't always tell from the packaging. You can't tell from the color of the bread. They might make fake sourdough at, you know, on the label. And it sounds really great, but you really got to look scratch beneath the surface, see actually how much fiber is in there. And I go into this in a fair bit of detail. I've got a table ranking the different breads compared to, you know, how I score them with you know, my blood results and my gut results. And so for me, there's only a few breads that are relatively healthy and they tend to be very high fiber rye breads or whole grain, multi-grain sourdoughs. And the other extreme, the you know, things that I, I thought were okay to eat, like croissants and bagels or ciabatta bread, score terribly for me. So really, you know, I might as well uh, be going to a sweet shop and eating those things. So it, I think that's, for me, that's, that's really changed. Uh, but it's quite hard to tell. And you know, most of the bread we buy in supermarkets is heating up from frozen. Sounds fresh. And if they put it in a bag, they don't have to tell you what's in it. And so you need to go back to getting your bread from trusted places and paying a bit more for it, to be honest. You know, it's got so cheap. I think it's become, you know, virtually worthless. Starting eat myself eating less bread, definitely. Less but higher quality bread, really picking the ones and uh, has made a big difference for me. feel much better. As I have mentioned throughout this podcast, your book is just so highly researched and going through some research I'm sure is super interesting to you and some research probably is less interesting and yet you still do it to obviously give people the information. Which parts of this book really gets you going? I think for me, I'm really interested in the future of food. Mm. I think that's super exciting uh, because it really combines you know, the combination of taste and science and all these things. And and I think we're seeing a sort of revolution in food, particularly in areas like meat replacements and dairy replacements. Uh, there have been lots of discussions now about, you know, Beyond Meat and um, Impossible Burger and these now billion-dollar companies that are making these, these substitutes. But, you know, they are ultra-processed, varieties of the meat and so they have their own disadvantages although they might be better for the planet they're still made in very industrial ways and I've even just in the speed of writing the book a couple of alternatives have, have, have rapidly come up and one is using much less processing and using fermented foods to make meat alternatives so using the bacteria to produce tastes and textures that are very much like meat and using things like tomatoes and peas and mushrooms 
uh, very healthy foods for the planet. And they, I've tasted some of them and they are amazing. And you know, they're going to revolutionize things. Plus, you've got these lab-based meats, which I thought were just pie in the sky. When I first wrote, wrote about them in 2015, you know, a burger cost 250,000 pounds to make. Now I'm told it, it, it's about $10. Wow. And it's coming down all the time. And once it gets to a parity with a cheap current real meat mm. burger, then it's going to transform the whole market. So we'll, within five years, we'll all be eating some lab-based meats. And this is going to be a bit of a shock for people as they tr come to terms with this, that you know, it's meat, but it's uh, you know just one cell out of uh, one animal. So concepts of vegetarianism are going to change and um, the ethics of it. And increasingly, we're going to demand you know, healthier and healthier versions of these so we can grow them in very healthy plant-based concoctions that can give us some of the benefits of plants as well. So I'm amazed at how the, the tech industry is moving so fast in this. There's all kinds of other stuff, 3D printing, um, how you can get fake bacon that looks like bacon and, you know, is got all made with plant ingredients, plant fat with um, fermented plants and then glued together with some natural sticky substances. I think um, the next 10 years is going to be pretty wild in terms of how we change some of the things we've taken for granted and we move away from meat and dairy. Have you tried a lab-grown beef burger, let's say, yet? No, I haven't. Uh, I've met people who have. You, you can go to Singapore, interestingly, and there's, a, there's one restaurant in Singapore selling it now. Wow. It's like a chicken nugget and it costs about $28. It's just because Singapore allows... Has is a very innovative market that allows people quickly to commercialise and sell products that Europe and the UK would take much longer to approve. But most people say that with meat, whether it's lab-grown or actually uncooked and unseasoned, doesn't have any taste. So it has texture, but it, it actually lacks taste. And lab-based meat will, will be even more like that because it, it, it has only the protein. It doesn't have the, the fat mixed in with it. And so these will all need really good cooking and seasoning right. to make it uh, special. But it's never going to replace a Kobe beefsteak or a T-bone, I don't think, in, a, in our lifetimes. But it will replace the humble sausage or the beef burger or mm. the chicken nugget or the place that most of the low-quality meats are, are currently going in. And you know, with ethical problems for those animals and mm. also terrible land damage to the planet. And I really appreciate the planetary theme that travels throughout the book. It's such a nice balance of learning about both and how optimizing both has net benefit. I would love to ask you about the blue muffin challenge, because it just feels like such a fun, simple experiment that we can all do. Why is this an important experiment to understand how healthy our bowels are? It came about a bit of an accident. We, as part of the Zoe Predict studies, the basis of the, the Zoe uh, Personalized Nutrition Kit, we gave all the participants muffins that were dyed bright blue so that we can measure something called transit time, which is the time it takes from eating something to the time it appears in the toilet, which it gives you an idea of how fast it's going through your whole intestinal passage. It's the same concept of people who might eat sweet corn and uh, 
who do look down will see the sweet corn in their poo. It was a clearer way of doing that without messing up some of the other results. So that's what we did. And it turned out to be really good measure of gut health. We able to time it. We got initially just a couple of thousand people to do it. And then we decided this, because it was correlated with our measurements of gut health, it's a sort of free way to get a rough idea of your your gut health. People who had a very slow transit time, and we're talking over 30 hours, for example, had much worse microbial health and diversity than people who had moderately rapid, not super rapid, because those people, you know, rushing to the toilet, they may not be well, but people who are in that sort of 12 to 24 hour transit times, those were particularly effective. So we rolled this out as a a fun campaign around the world. We've now got about 50,000 people uh, who've taken part. There's a website still there. If you look up Blue Poop Challenge, you can get the recipe for your blue muffin. You can log your results and you can compare yourself to other people. And it turned out the average person in the UK, I think, was about 28 hours, I think it was. And there was many, many over 36 hours. And it was quite interesting that, you know, many people thought it was quite normal to only go to the toilet, you know, once or twice a week and thought it was abnormal to go more than once a day. And yet we know from all the healthy tribes in the world that that's, that is the healthy amount. And that tells you you're also getting enough fiber in your, in your system. Big differences around the world. UK and US were very similar. Obviously, as we went to places like uh, India and Africa, really much faster transit times. And so this experiment's still going and everyone can still take part. And it's a good thing, you know, test your family, you know, your spouses, your kids. Uh, it's quite a fun thing to do on a, a rainy Sunday, do a bit of baking and um, get some surprising results. And uh, mine was about 18 hours, but it does vary a little bit from week to week. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out of pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. One thing that obviously stands out in your book because you know, you are the leading, one of the leading researchers on microbiome. So you talk about probiotics a lot. 
from what I understand and what I read throughout your work, you're pretty disparaging about the supplement industry and needing to supplement different vitamins. But probiotics, the only things that I think you advocate for as an additional thing that you can take in supplement form that is actually helpful to supporting your health. But when you're actually looking at probiotic supplements and it says, oh, we've got 10 million in here, 100 million in there, which ones should we be trusting? Is there a probiotic go-to that you do endorse? Sadly, no. My support for probiotics is cautious mm. because you know, we did a review a couple of years ago in the BMJ and, and showed that in general, probiotic studies do tend to show some benefits in many different common diseases and, and problems and can particularly help the elderly and children whose guts might be be suffering. But it didn't tell us which the key makes were, which particular microbes within those groups were better than others because nearly every study is done using a different combination. Each manufacturer has their own patented ones. It's really a bit of a minefield. And my view is that probiotics work in the future are going to be personalized Mm. to our own gut microbes because we're all very different. We maybe only share 30% of our gut microbes with each other. So why should the same probiotic work for you and me if we're selecting only one or two strains? So I always prefer probiotic foods, which tend to, A, have other benefits. You definitely know there's microbes in it alive. And if you go to fermented foods like kefir or kombucha, they've got many, many times more different microbes than just your probiotic supplements. So I think you get more variety, therefore a ch- greater chance that are being a benefit. That's my general philosophy. But if you do want to pick one, say you're, you've had a course of antibiotics, you, you, know, you want to try and get your gut health back, or you've got some uh, traveler's diarrhea or something, then go for one that has got different blends, different strains in it, and that has very high amounts in it. We're talking billions, not millions. So you look for a minimum of five billion. And you prepared to pay a reasonable amount from a trusted brand rather than the cheapest one on the shelf that might have been there for a year and uh, gathering dust. But I'm hopefully that the field is going to change and we have much more targeted, uh, useful probiotics. So I'm a cautious supporter, as you can say. There's lots of caveats. Best to just use fermented foods for for the vast majority of cases. There's plenty now all around us. We're surrounded by fermented foods in the last five years. There's been a a massive change in the options available. One part of the book I found fascinating and really haven't given much thought to is the power of chewing. Would you mind explaining why chewing food is so important in helping our health and Does this mean soup is less helpful for us? Because obviously when we're having soup, we're not really chewing that much. Great questions. Don't fall into the trap of being too reductionist that saying, well, (laughs) you know, Tim says chewing is important. Therefore, you've got to have the toughest, grisliest meat to eat, you know, for the rest of your life. It's all about variety. But I was using chewing really to explain some of the complexities of our digestive system. Chewing is a very important first stage for humans. It initiates a lot of the enzymes that start the process. 
it already gets the saliva going so that the, an enzyme called amylase can start breaking down the starches and uh, getting into those nutrients. So it, it has a physiological purpose, but also people who chew tend to eat slower. And this also gives your body time to react, send the right signals to the rest of the system about expecting food coming down and everything is perfectly primed so that there's no waste and there's not excessive buildup along the way. So in a way, it's a, an alert system. It's like the warm-up system for the rest of your gut and your body. Maybe we think it probably primes your gut microbes as well to say this, you know, hey guys, something coming here. And we now know that the speed of eating is also related to your sugar spikes later on and your risk of getting overweight. So there's a clear correlation we found in our in the Zoe studies between people who eat very fast tend to gain weight. So, you know, it'd be an interesting test to see if you can make people eat slower, chew their food more, actually is a potential other weight loss mechanism. But I've got nothing against soups. Obviously, uh, filling your stomach with large volumes of liquid, some people believe actually helps satiate the body so you, you feel less hungry than if you ate it without the liquid. So all these things are, are, are counterbalances. But I hope in the book I've shown that it's a really complex system to understand and we mustn't just pick one thing and say, okay, I'm only going to do that. You know, I'm only going to have the hard-to-chew diet or I'm only going to have the um, cabbage diet or I'm only going to you know, do this. The whole idea is that you're given the all this information to arm yourself so that you can make those little changes in your in your life that altogether are going to add up to a lot of things, but are relatively easy to do. Something you just mentioned there, which brings me on to a whole subject being blood sugar levels. I feel that this is becoming a bigger and bigger topic culturally with these glucose monitors being more accessible on the market. Would you mind explaining to us the relationship between blood sugar spikes and inflammation and why blood sugar can often lead to fatigue and maybe some of the symptoms that people just get on with and don't realize could be managed? So this was news to me, really, you know, when I started writing the book. And so it was a bit of a voyage of discovery. At the same time, we got together, formed the company Zoe and started the baseline science studies, which involved a thousand people, mainly twins, eating identical meals with glucose monitors and taking blood every uh, half hour or so on them in an incredibly intensive way. So this massive study showing these individual variations suddenly showed us the effects of these sugar spikes on individuals. So firstly, there was a tenfold difference in sugar spikes between people, normal people, eating the same muffin. So that was one thing. And the second thing we showed was that there was a correlation between people who had lots of sugar spikes and also fat in the blood. So we're not obsessed with sugar. We also look at how fast you clear fat. So if having sugar spikes and not clearing your fat at six hours after a meal, both were correlated with levels of inflammation in the blood. So this meant that if, if that happens every day, you're getting a stress to your body through this inflammation that is continuous. And it's that, 
destabilizes your normal metabolic state, might make you feel more tired, make you feel more hungry, and probably will lead to weight gain. So that's the basis of, of that. And if you can re- do the opposite, you can reduce those uh, fat and sugar spikes, you reduce the inflammation, uh, you can offset a lot of those symptoms. That's what we showed with the spikes. But we also showed that there were some other strange things going on with sugar dips. And one in four people have a sugar dip after a big carb breakfast. You know, that desperate desire at about 10.30 to have a McVitie's biscuit that they feel they can't control or something chocolate and sweet. And if they feel tired, that you know, they're losing concentration, energy. And we demonstrated this without people knowing what their sugar was. They were reporting... Uh, people who were dipping below their baseline levels had lower energy and greater hunger. And those people actually ate another 10% of food more than people who weren't having dips. So a couple of hundred calories a day overeating because of this feeling they got from this individual response to those carbs. So we don't know exactly why this all happens. We're just observing what we're seeing. But this is all very new science. And I guess one of the greatest culprits for spiking blood sugar level is ultra processed foods, which is a huge topic of this book and really helps you understand why we should be wary of them. And I particularly enjoyed reading about your old breakfast you used to have at the start of your career and how that has dramatically changed, especially orange juice being a bit of a devil in many ways. What's the top line people need to know about ultra-processed foods? And what is your piece of interventional advice when it comes to them? Top line of ultra-processed foods is that you should be wary, not about the fat content, the sugar content, but the quality of the food and what it does to your body. Because it's all the other ingredients that seem to be important. It's all made in a factory. It doesn't resemble the original ingredients. And it makes up about half of all the energy that we have in the UK. So virtually impossible to avoid completely. So we all eat them. But people who eat them regularly, even they're trying to match the calories, will actually overeat by about 200 calories. It makes you hungrier than the equivalent whole food. And it makes your gut less healthy than equivalent whole food matched by nutrient. So it doesn't matter about the fats and the sugars. It's all the other things that go into it and the fact that generally they have much less fiber. So we should be much more wary of ultra-processed foods and stop thinking that there are safe ones and there are unsafe ones. It's a bit like the early days of cigarette smoking in the 1980s when people say, oh, this is the, you know, my mum used to smoke silk-cut cigarettes and uh, they were told, oh, they're mild, they're lower in nicotine, they're actually much healthier for you. And this is what, I think we're facing with ultra-processed food is they're not testing them properly on our gut microbes. They're still doing the old-fashioned standard testing that was done 60 years ago uh, because of their powerful lobbying with government. But really, we, we should be avoiding them. We should realize that however healthy-looking the labels are, it's all those extra ingredients that, are, that make us hungrier, make us overeat, and make our microbes sick. So... Try and wean yourself off. There's usually an alternative, and many people don't realize what ultra-processed foods are and how many easy alternatives there are. So just look more carefully at the packet. 
and go beyond the low calorie counts, which is just a camouflage. I guess one of my biggest vices is crisps. What is your intervention for crisps? Well, we share the similar vices. <laughs> uh, so all crisps are processed foods, okay, unless you make them yourself, and you can make them yourself, slice a potato and you, you saute it in high-quality olive oil and you'll have a, a reasonably healthy food. But what I discovered is that crisps do vary in their healthfulness or, or lack of it. And many things we think of crisps are actually not made with potatoes at all. They're composites. So you take things like Doritos or Pringles. Pringles. They're... I was horrified when I was reading about the Pringle. <laughs> yeah, the very little potato in Pringles because it's a bit too expensive. So they use things like rice flour and starch and uh, corn and mixture of other stuff. It all gets heated up, massive temperatures under high pressure, and then pushed into this glue that, and then made, made to look into these potato-like discs. And then all these flavorings, ingredients, glue stuck in with it to make them irresistible. You know, they're not a whole food at all. There's virtually no fiber in them. And they're full of these additives, ingredients that make them very unhealthy and bad for your gut microbes. Whereas on the other end, you could probably find some artisanal crisps that are just sliced potatoes, ideally with a skin on, that are fried in, you can get extra, in fried in extra virgin olive oil in some place, increasingly in France and Spain and come into the UK, but high quality rapeseed oils that are not so bad for your health. Okay, I'm not going to say they're good, mm. but there's a huge range, I think, between eating those kinds and the ones that look like monsters or have bright orange colors, or we mustn't treat them all as the same. But you are much better off going for peanuts or cashew nuts or mixed nuts if you are in for a treat and, and, and keep the crisps as uh, a bit of a rare treat, I think, is, is how I would like to do it, although I don't always succeed either. <laughs> Okay, good. Glad to know we're on the same boat. And my next question, I'm sure you ask this a lot. And also, I realize it's a difficult one, because as much as we'd love to change the world, it is difficult in the structures uh, that we have in place. And that really is to eat well, you know, just you're mentioning there, have the crisp, potentially go for the extra virgin olive oil, but that does obviously require time and money to find these healthier options for food or just even the time to cook a good meal is often a privilege. Our lifestyles and modernity in the way that we've just been conditioned recently, we're kind of, I hate to say that we're victims of the environment we're in, but a lot of people are. And so then we're just starving and eat the choices that we don't necessarily want to. What are your general thoughts around this and making a more democratic approach to eating well? Well, I think we need to look at other countries and, and learn mm. from those and realise how in the last 20 years, the, the British lunch hour has sort of disappeared. Mm. And so it's now five minutes at your computer with a supermarket sandwich, you know, in its plastic container, which, you know, no one could have really imagined 50 years ago that would be seen as an acceptable lunch. Mm. And if you go to Italy, Spain, France, people are spending twice as long at eating their meals as they are uh, in the UK and 
three times as long, I think, than, than the US, where, you know, a fifth of all meals are eaten in a car. So wow. I think it's part of our culture that we need to step back and realize that if you're going to eat food, do it properly. And it's also, I think, built into our snacking culture that's appeared that as our meals have got shorter, we're snacking more. And so we now have five or six eating events over a day as opposed to a standard two or three. And the healthy Mediterranean countries don't snack. You know, you don't see them eating crisps at a bus stop or nibbling things on the way home or having cakes and biscuits uh, at tea time or, or coffee time. So they wait for their, their meals and they they maybe eat more, but they appreciate it and they sit down and they relax. And I think that's something we need to try and tackle as a society to realize how important not only what you eat, but also how you're eating and, and, and the quality of the environment. And we start to value food and eating more than we do. And that, that education needs to start in schools. And, you know, we've lost that. People are no longer taught to cook mm. and value food in the way that previous generations did. And I think, you know, it's the most important life skill we have really and it's the most important for our own health and it's the most important for the planet so it's about time it moved up that ladder how do you wind down i cycle a lot so i cycle to work and back and so being the end of the working day that was always a good way for me and i also meditate so from the age of 18 i was doing something called transcendental meditation wow which means that 20 minutes twice a day i go into my little meditation and most of the time it uh, relieves some of the stress and, and relaxation so they're the thing so yeah I'm, I'm i'm into sport you know swimming cycling making sure i get plenty of uh, holidays and breaks and and try and turn the work off as much as i can but not always easy doesn't always succeed but um, most of the time i i think i i have the right balance Thank you so much for being on the show. Where is the best place for people to find you and will you be doing any sort of public events for people to ask their own questions to you? People can follow me on Twitter or Instagram. I'm either Tim Spector or Tim.Spector on that. They can follow Zoe on Instagram and often those things are linked. They can go to my personal website to see where I'm talking next, which is tim.spector.co.uk. And if they want to join the Zoe program, they can go to joinzoe.com and uh, do the same studies that I did, or as you suggested, also the Blue Poop campaign. And, and if they, they want to do something for free that's fun, available to everybody, they can learn more about their gut health. But yeah, there's plenty everyone can do. And I'd also like people to join the Zoe Health Study, which uh, they can download the app on that. And we have half a million people that are doing this big community project, looking at things on diet and lifestyle. And we're just about to start the world's biggest intervention study in the community of uh, intermittent fasting, restricted time eating. So if people download the app, they can go straight on that. And then again, that's completely free as well. So plenty of ways people can uh, get involved. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time. This has been great. My pleasure. 
Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Not Perfect Podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would deeply appreciate it if you wouldn't mind subscribing and leaving a review and perhaps maybe sending it to a friend who also might enjoy this episode. I can't tell you how grateful I am for those that share this podcast on their social media or with friends because it helps the show reach more listeners. I'd absolutely love to hear from you. So if you've had any thoughts or you want a specific guest coming up in future episodes, just let me know. Shoot me a message on Instagram or Twitter. It's just at Poppy Jamie. And so until next time, stay flexible, stay true to you and stay leaning into love. Normally being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.